Hello and welcome to Gamma Project. My name is Dean Statman, I'll be your host, and this is episode 5. This episode is brought to you by Ultra. Ultra, that's A-L-T-R-A, makes shoes that allow you to run the way you were born to. Ultra's founders noticed something, that the design of most running shoes was hurting runners more than helping them. In traditional running shoes, elevated heels promote a high-impact landing, and narrow, pointy toe boxes squeeze the toes out of their natural position, increasing risk of bunions, hammer toes, and plantar fasciitis. So... A couple of years ago, Ultra founder Golden Harper began melting off outsoles and removing the excess heel elevation from his traditional running shoes. It wasn't pretty, but it worked, and the term zero drop was coined to describe level cushioning and perfect weight balance from heel to forefoot. Today, every Ultra running shoe features a fully cushioned zero drop platform that places the heel and forefoot at the same distance from the ground. This natural balance aligns the feet, back, and body posture for less impact. It also strengthens the Achilles and lower calf muscles that have been weakened over a lifetime of running on elevated heels. In addition to zero drop, Ultra's foot-shaped toe box allows the toes to relax and spread out naturally, while allowing the big toe to remain in a straight position. This enhances stability and creates a powerful toe-off to maximize running performance. I was introduced to Ultra a couple of years ago, and their running shoes have since become a sort of secret weapon for me. I break them out for especially punishing runs, and when it's time to go off-road, their trail shoes are the only ones I'll wear. The Lone Peak is my personal favorite. This spring, Ultra wants you to embrace the space and get fired up for taking your runs outside with their lineup of fast and light road shoes. One model to check out for sure is the Ultra Duo, which features 31mm cushioning beneath both the forefoot and the heel, and weighs in at a crazy light 7.5 ounces. If you're interested in checking out the Ultra Duo, you can head to fleetfeetsports.com. That's F-L-E-E-T-F-E-E-T sports.com. They'll be available there through March. Ultra is also committed to helping runners avoid injury by teaching efficient, low-impact running technique. Golden, who, by the way, ran a world record two-hour, 45-minute marathon when he was just 12 years old, taught me everything I know about running with proper form. By focusing on just four core pillars, we completely overhauled my running form and noticeably improved my performance and efficiency. In case you're curious, since you're listening to a podcast about self-improvement after all, those four pillars were, number one, establishing a forward momentum posture. And Golden has a great way of explaining this, where he'll have you stand up in a straight line, lean forward from your ankles, and as you're about to fall over, that is your running posture. Number two, utilizing a proper arm swing. So not letting your arms flail left and right as you're running, keeping them going forward and back, and also not allowing your elbows to come forward past your chest. Number three, cultivating low impact landings. And really, that's just learning how to land lighter on your feet and also using your legs as springs instead of relying on your footwear to do that for you. And lastly, number four, maintaining a high cadence, essentially covering the same amount of ground with more steps. You can find more information on those, which I encourage you to check out if you're a runner, along with all kinds of advice and tips for proper running form, 
as well as, of course, information on all of Ultra's products at ultrarunning.com. That's A-L-T-R-A-R-U-N-N-I-N-G.com. What's up, everyone, and welcome to Gamma Project. Once again, I'm your host, Dean Statman, and this is episode number five. Jason Pfeiffer is editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine and host of not one, but two podcasts, Pessimist Archive, about the history of unfounded fears of innovation, and Problem Solvers, about how entrepreneurs solve unexpected problems in their business. They're both excellent podcasts, and Pessimist Archive is one of the most meticulously produced shows out there. After listening to just one episode, you're going to find it hard to believe that Jason has time to do anything else, let alone run a national media brand. Of course, that's not all Jason does. In addition to Entrepreneur and the podcasts, he is also the creative mind behind viral sites such as Crossing.us, Heat Fan Sounds, Bad NBA Songs, and Selfies at Funerals. He also just co-wrote a novel with his wife titled Mr. Nice Guy, which will come out in October from St. Martin's Press. Prior to Entrepreneur, Jason has been an editor at Fast Company, Men's Health, Maxim, and Boston, and has written for New York, ESPN, Slate, GQ, The New York Times, Washington Post, The Guardian, and others. To kick off this wide-ranging, in-depth conversation, we start off with the subject of parenting. Jason has a two-and-a-half-year-old son, and one of the things that I wanted to know was how he knew when he was ready. From there, we move into a skill that every new parent could stand to pick up, and that's juggling numerous things at the same time. Probably figuratively and literally. In Jason's case, projects, and he's an absolute pro at juggling numerous projects at the same time. So we talk about that, and then go into the apps that Jason uses to increase his productivity and to stay organized. We talk a lot about knowing your worth and getting what you deserve. And one of the things that Jason recently started doing and has excelled at is public speaking. One of my favorite pieces of advice in this interview is when Jason talks about how to nail a speech without memorizing a single line. If you do any public speaking, you will find this to be a game changer. There's tons of advice in here, as you would expect, for newly minted entrepreneurs. Like how to know when your business or product is ready to take to market. Jason has a great idea here about putting yourself to the test before putting your business to the test, and we expand on that. Then, of course, we get to selfies. Jason is widely regarded by media around the world, including the New York Times, as the international authority on selfies. He tells the story of how a simple Tumblr account became an overnight viral sensation, and how he parlayed that opportunity into a whirlwind of media attention. In that same vein, we cover strategies for growing your audience, as well as what to do with that megaphone once you get it to maximize your resources for the greatest return. One thing I can tell you for sure is that there is a ton of return to be gained from this conversation should you choose to invest your time in it. Also, today's episode is a special one for me personally. Not only is Jason one of the people who actually encouraged me to create this podcast, this conversation is the first interview I recorded for the show. And there's evidence of that. As it turns out, microphones, at least the kind that I use, have a front and a back. And if you speak into the back instead of the front, your voice sounds distant. Fortunately, Jason sounds great because it was, in fact, my mic that was flipped the other way around. At least, that's what I think happened. Thankfully, this show is about the guests, not me. And few people out there can impart as much practical knowledge and in as accessible and relatable a manner as Jason Pfeiffer. So, with all that said, let's get right into it because here is my conversation with Jason Pfeiffer. 
welcome. Thank you. So we're sitting here in your living room. We are. In Brooklyn. In Brooklyn. And it kind of feels like we're on the set of Sesame Street. Yeah. My kid's stuff is everywhere. I didn't clean up. Uh, I was home alone with him tonight, which is why there has been no cleanup. If my wife was here, there would have been cleanup. But uh, we got Ernie and Bert. We got um, this cat piano over there in the couch is the most amazing thing because you can't see it actually because it's upside down. But if you flipped it over, it's the face of a cat and then a keyboard underneath. And there's a setting that I love that my son, unfortunately, has no interest in, which is too bad, which is uh, that it makes every key do a meow. So it'll be like, meow, 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 meow. You know, you can do like Mary Had a Little Lamb and meows. And uh, he won't he won't play in that function, which is too bad because that's the funniest part of it. Kids' toys are super weird. Kids' <laughs> toys are super, super weird. You guys were playing a fun game when I arrived where uh, Fen, your son, runs around and then you... This is gonna sound horrible. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a beach ball. It's a very lightweight beach ball. Yeah. That you very delicately propel in the general direction of his head. That's right. I'm not beaming it at his head. No. But then he, you know, realizes it's now time to fall down and act like I've been hit by a ball. Yeah. You throw a ball at his head and he fall. Well, so what happens is you throw a ball at his head and then he waits about a second and then he falls down and right. it's hilarious. Yeah. You know, it's. I mean, it's funny that you you caveated the. Uh, velocity of the beach ball because i made a super cut of him doing this i, I filmed him over two days because this is the thing he does now because i think he knows that i find it funny and so i filmed him and then i made a little super cut of 50 seconds and i posted it on facebook and it occurred to me that somebody out there because the internet is the internet might say oh my god this guy is throwing a ball at his son's head but i i watched it very carefully and it's it's so clear that the, the every time the beach ball makes contact with its head with his head, it then goes bouncing off somewhere. Like it's very clear that it is a light ball. He is never upset about it, and so far, no complaints. And also, sometimes he he takes the dive even when the ball misses. It. That's right. That's right. He will fall whether or not he's hit. So I think that that's a clear indication that there is a there's a there's a call and response here. So how old is Ben now? Two and a half. Two and a half. Wow. It's amazing how much kids change in a short amount of time yeah. when they're still this young. Oh, yeah. It's like every other week is a new kid because yeah, they're, they, they're interested in new things and they express themselves differently and they almost move differently. It's really bizarre. And then it's really cool to see the through line. You know, there's like a there's a developing version of himself that is feels consistent throughout all that. But the way that he interacts with the world is always changing. Wow. Now, so you're, you know, two and a half years, still relatively new parent. Yeah. I guess you'd say, uh, especially, you know, your first, your first child. Um, what was something about parenting that was the most surprising? Like something that you just did not consider at all? Because you're considering so many things when you're preparing, right? Like to be parents. Was there something that you were just like, oh, wow, I cannot believe I did not think about this? You know, it's funny. Actually, I'll sort of take... I, I don't know that I agree that you consider all the things before you become a parent because I think that becoming a parent is not – you decide when. You make a decision about when. I mean, you know, unless it's a surprise and then it was not. It was decided for you. But otherwise, I think that at least for our, for us, we just – we knew we wanted kids and we knew when we wanted to start, which was age 35. I, I met my wife, I was 28. And 
as soon as we were serious enough that we were talking about having kids and we got married in, in 2011, which is to say that I was 28. Oh no, I met her in 2009. I was 29 when I met her and we got married when we were 31 and we said kid first we said kids by 35 and then we changed it to kids at 35 because <laughs> by could mean before and I, I really was pushing it. And I felt like I knew that was the time when I wanted to do that. It's also sort of biological uh, clock that you're on here. But I'll tell you, we didn't consider, there wasn't much to consider. We knew we wanted to do it. We pushed it as far as we could. We felt like we were secure in our careers and could financially support the kid and luckily had found a home. We are in a two bedroom apartment, so it, was, it wasn't going to be too much of a squeeze. And then you just go for it. So there's, I don't know what the hell you consider. I don't know what we considered. The biggest surprise for me, I would say, is that I always thought of myself as an extremely patient person. I remember my parents would compliment me on being patient. And I do not have nearly as much patience with him as I think I thought I would. And it turns out that my wife is the far more patient. And so he, he, will, he will get me to the end of my patience pretty quick. <laughs> have you picked up any... Um tactics to sort of extend that patience to where it's required to I mean I watch <laughs> I watch my wife my so my wife's name is Jen I watch Jen she what she what she's really good at is allowing him to enter into the thing that we need him to do by himself so let's just take shoes putting on shoes in the morning before we take him to daycare he will frequently fight the shoes and the way that he does it is first he'll just object to the shoes and then he'll insist on doing the shoes himself, but he can't, he physically can't do the shoes himself. I mean, he can like sort of get them to his feet, but they're sneakers. Like he doesn't have the strength and agility to just pull them onto his feet. So what he'll do is he'll say, my turn, my turn. He'll insist on doing it, but he can't physically do it. And then he will just sort of fuss around for a while and then he'll lose interest in it. And then if you try to force the shoes on him, he'll freak out. Right. And so this is a tough situation because the thing I keep telling him, which of course does not register to, to a two and a half year old's brain is if you say my turn, you have to do it. If you say my <laughs> turn, it's your turn. You have to do it. Instead, my turn to him just is a kind of claim to do whatever he wants. So what ends up happening is I go through a little bit of this dance and then I, I, I call, I call a time, right? I'm like, okay, Fed in five seconds, if you haven't done this, I'm going to do it and then I'll do it and he'll start flipping out and I'll just keep doing it because the shoes have got to go on. We got to go because I got to drop him off and then I got to go to work. Right? So like I'm impatient. I need all this to happen. And Jen will allow him in to find it himself a little bit more. Maybe she'll ask what else he wants. Does he want a song? Does he want her to sing a song while he, she does it? Does he want to play with his shoes for a minute? Like she just, introduces other ideas and somehow gets him into the shoes. Whereas I am a kind of A to B person, like we're here and then the we got to go to the shoes, like point A to point B. And I, I need to, so I watch her and I try to implement that more. So she's got a bit more of the, the Mary Poppins spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. Whereas you're more, this is the mission. Yeah. Go. And that's not what I would have <laughs> expected from me. That's not my, that, that's not my style usually, but I guess, 
you learn things about yourself when you're a parent. Yeah, something I'm curious about, and speaking of learning, is you know, and of course we'll we'll get to entrepreneur, and you've you've worked at some you know incredible magazines and brands, um, but mostly very service based, you know, um, very um, tactical. You talk about fast company or uh, men's health entrepreneur. Are there any strategies or tactics that you've picked up along the way pertaining to parenting that you're now like, oh, I get to try this, or like. Maybe it's some kind of learning mechanism uh, for Fen or, or some kinds of things to help him learn or behave a certain way. Um, you know, is there anything like that that you've picked up that you've now been able to introduce into your own life? You know, it's funny you ask that, and like, we'll talk about this more when we get into, into journalism stuff. I don't like reading service. I hate reading service. I read no service. It's funny that I ended up in the kind of journalism I do where there is a lot of advice giving. Because I never liked it and I don't consume it. So I've read no parenting books. I've read no parenting blogs. There's a site called Fatherly. I've never read it. I just... I No shade to Fatherly. No shade to Fatherly. Actually, I, I, I know one of the co-founders. It's, I, it's just not for me. You know, I mean, it's like, it's not for me the way Teen Vogue isn't for me. I'm sure it's wonderful. It's just not, it's not for me. Uh, I, um, I feel like... You can do things a bazillion different ways, endless ways, and reach the same outcome. I feel like I could raise my son in so many different ways, so long as the consistent theme is supportive and loving, right? But I could do so many different things, and he will turn out the way that he will turn out. And I think that once you can be open to that flexibility in the world, you realize that specific roadmaps don't matter. And it's better to just go the way that feels right than to bog yourself down in, in you know, in, in what almost feels like twister. Like, like reading service feels like twister to me. Like put your hand here and then put your arm the other way. And then, right. It's like, it feels completely unnatural to the movement of the world. I would rather just figure my own way through it and ask friends if something, if for advice or insight, if something goes wrong, but otherwise not worry necessarily about the, 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 the great guidance out there. Right. And when you're sort of describing something like that, where it's maybe an exercise or something, and you've got copy telling you how to text for those non-journalists or editors telling you how to do something, um, you know, also brands these days are, are sort of innovating in the realm of how do we use a different medium maybe to make that clearer. So maybe it's a video, whereas for decades it used to be a description. Now we're using a different medium to make it more clear. Yeah. Um, so I want to sort of uh, zoom out for a second, still on the subject of parenting. Um, you know, this is something I've thought about and obviously I've spoken about with other friends that the idea of being ready, because you hear from a lot of parents, um, maybe even all parents that you never are truly ready. That's true. How did you feel when you were sort of on the cusp of this decision and what did you do to get as ready as you possibly could be? So I didn't do anything, but I did observe in myself a change that I was relieved to have had. And here it was. So <laughs> um, if you work in media in New York, Dean, you know this very well, you are invited to tons of stuff. And 
I moved to New York at age 28 uh, to men's health and I was immediately invited to all this stuff and the stuff is amazing. It's nothing magical. It's basically brands hosting events at bars. It's almost all of what it is. But the thing is, it's absurdly extravagant and the booze and the food is great and Everybody that you want to network with is there because it's a small industry. It feels big, but it's actually quite small. And once you become friends with all of these other editors, then it's basically like every night going out to the bar where it's open bar and open food and you're with your friends. And it's awesome. And the thing that, and so that became, that basically became my social life, right? I mean, when I, when I moved to New York, I decided that I moved to New York late for me, I, I moved at 28. I wanted to be here earlier, but I wanted to come with a job. And so I, I didn't move until I got one. And I decided I would do something every night, something every night. And I, I literally wow. held on to that from age 28 to 34 when my wife was pregnant. We had to kind of dial it back. And, you know, at first it was going to events and things I would actually buy tickets for. Um, and then as I became friends with more people in the city, it was lots of dinners and drinks. But it was also primarily these media events, booze events is what my wife and I call them, the booze events. And, um, and you know, and we've gone to many a booze event uh, yes, together ourselves. And I loved this stuff. And I loved my access to the city. And I felt so fortunate to have these keys to a part of the city that lots of people don't. And I was very worried for a long time that I would resent or in some way feel uncomfortable having a kid and therefore not having access to that stuff anymore. And that really concerned me. Like I was just worried that I wasn't ready to give up the old life and trade it in for whatever the new life was. I did not know what it would look like, but I definitely knew it didn't involve going out every night. And a very fortunate thing happened. And that was that I would say the year leading up to when my wife got pregnant, those events started to get a little boring and repetitive. We'd done them for years, for years. We went to the same venues. They were the same parties. And also the friends that we were going with, a lot of whom are mutual friends of ours, also stopped going to them because they had other things to do in their lives. <laughs> like they had relationships and they had some soccer league and then whatever the hell they had, they had other things. And, and so it used to be, I would send out an email to like five guys and we'd be like, you know, next Thursday, this, and everyone's like in, and, and with that, that stopped happening. And it started to feel like, Oh, it's time for a new phase. It's a time to do something else. And I felt very fortunate that I felt that change. Like that change happened on its own. And I observed that change and I thought, okay, I'm ready. I actually am ready for something else. And so I, in that way, felt prepared. There was no way to know what else was coming or how to prepare or whatever. But you certainly have to be in the right mindset. You have to know this kid is going to alter 90% of your life. Right? Uh, it just is. And you have to be prepared if not for the specifics of that, then at least for the possibility of it. So my last memory of Fen, until up until seeing him again tonight, where he looks like a different person. Yeah. Um, we were in, I believe it was Prospect Park, 
and mm-hmm. we were there with a couple of the people that you were actually just referencing. And I remember that it started to rain, and this was a huge bummer because there, there was a bunch of us there, and we had just kind of settled. And you pulled out your phone, you looked at some app, and you were like, don't worry, guys, it'll be over in about seven minutes. Dark sky. And seven minutes later, it stopped raining. Yeah, that app is amazing. Dark sky. That's Dark what it was sky. Doing. What other apps do you have right now that are some of your like go-to apps? <laughs> um, yeah, definitely do Dark Sky. I learned about Dark Sky from a photographer while I was on an assignment in Omaha and we were outside and it kept raining and he kept checking it and uh, he said he lives his life by Dark Sky and so I downloaded it. It's like three bucks. Um, so the other, well, okay, this is this is such a boring app, but I use it all the time. Tiny Scanner. Do you know what Tiny Scanner is? I do. So you aim it. Uh, it's like, you, you, at first you're like, why do I need this? It, 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 it turns something that you, it like, let's say that you have a receipt that you need to scan for expenses. You, you take a photo of it and it turns it into a PDF. But the thing is that it doesn't just like take a photo of it. It actually, it actually kind of fl- it like flattens it. It identifies the angle by which you took it. And then it, it adjusts it so that it feels like it was overhead. And, um, it's, it's genius. And I use it all the time not just for expenses. I actually use it because I sketch out ideas a lot. I, I, I think rather visually. And as a magazine editor, I want to communicate to the art department or to other editors what I'm thinking, how I want a page to play. So I will, I will very, very commonly sketch something out on a piece of paper, scan it with Tiny Scanner, and then email it to someone. And then they understand what I'm talking about. I do that all the time. So I use Tiny Scanner a lot. Um, and you know, let's see, I'm trying to think of, you know, it's so funny because if you look at, if you look at data for app usage, people use like two apps mm-hmm. or three apps. They use like email, Facebook, and something else, Snapchat probably. And Otherwise, people download apps and then they like never use them again. And I, I have a lot of that. <laughs> there's a lot of my, there's a lot of these things that I'm like, oh, this is going to be totally useful. Like there's an app that if you need something, uh, what's that stupid thing where you, notarized, if you need something notarized. <laughs> How notarized. is that still a thing? It's so stupid. What is notarizing it's something? Notarized, notarizing feels like it's from the 1700s. Like I, I hate notarizing. I, I once had to notarize something for like an embassy. It was a, like an important thing. And whatever it was had to be notarized. And I was still beginning of my career, junior staffer at this, at this company. And I remember telling this to the receptionist, she was sort of an older woman. And she was like, oh, don't worry, I'm a notary. And she, you know, put on her glasses, pulled out her little stamp, stamped the page, and I was notarized. Yeah. What did that do? Nothing. It's so stupid. It's so stupid. Like there must be some entrenched industry that keeps this stupid thing alive. I hate it. I, 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 the last time I had to get something notarized, it marched around the city. I had to go to like four different places, wait 20 minutes and pay whatever the hell I pay. It's so stupid. So there's this, somebody created this app called it's notarize is what I think is what it's called. And it is a vi- it's like a video conference with a notary public. So you, uh, you open it, you tap something, whatever the hell you do. And then you get a notary just like that. Boop. There's a notary. It's a human being. They ask you whatever stupid questions they need to ask you. Verify that you're a human being. Whatever they do, and uh, and then you're no- and then it's notarized. 
it's so smart because you don't have to leave the home. Now, I wish, of course, wow. that the entire notary system was just torn to the ground and burned, but it, the um, at least this is something that cuts through it. So I downloaded it because I was like, yeah, I hate notaries. But the thing is, of course, like how often do you guys think notarize? Like right. Once every two years. So I've actually never used the app, but I love the idea of it. Okay. <laughs> um, so here's the other thing that I... Uh, that I that I use um, uh, that uh, anybody who is interviewing people or interested in podcasts or whatever, Trint. I had Trint. recommended this to you. Um, Sounds before. like a dating app. Yeah, I know it does. Sound like oh, a we met app. on Trint. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that would be very weird if you met on Trint because it's a um, it's a AI transcription service. Uh, it is um, so you take a piece of audio. You could take the last ten minutes of me blabbing away here, and you could you just upload it to Trint. And give it a few minutes, and it produces a, tra a transcription of it. It's amazing. Wow. Because in the past, you would have to send it to a person and wait a week and pay $500. And now it takes three minutes. And I don't, you know, actually, honestly, I don't know what Trent costs because we have a corporate account. But it can't be that much. And it's amazing. And I use it all the time. I, I feed every interview I do through it now. And it's, you know, it's not perfect, but it's like good enough. So speaking of podcasts, yeah, you are, I will be honest, definitely a big part of my inspiration to start this podcast. I appreciate that. Um, definitely the the closest person to me who is actually doing it well and at a, at a decent scale right Thank now. Thank you. Um, so you have Pessimist Archive, yeah. uh, which you work on. Uh, you also have Problem Solvers, which is attached to the, the entrepreneur brand. Correct. But Pessimist Archive came first. Yeah. Do you consider yourself a pessimist? No, nor do I consider Pessimist Archive to be a pessimistic show. So let me explain Pessimist Archive for those who haven't heard it. Uh, Pessimist Archive, I call it a history of unfounded fears of innovation. I used to call it a history of unfounded fears of technology, but for reasons I'll explain in a second, I changed that word. The idea is to look back at the moment that something new was introduced and try to understand why it freaked everybody out. So for example, the Walkman or recorded music or the horseless carriage, these things that we just take as a common part of our lives that, that, that are just part of the fabric of our everyday living that you couldn't possibly imagine are offensive or dangerous in any way. When they were introduced, they freaked people out. People were afraid of them and they made claims that it would harm us irreparably. And I like looking back at these moments. So what I do is I, I do a deep, deep dive. I tend to interview like three to five historians. I dive into books. I find archival materials. And when, when I say me, I, I also have a, a team of um, a couple other producers, all volunteer. And uh, we, and then I, and then I collect it and kind of create this narrative and tell this story with lots of different audio. And it's this highly produced thing. And the idea is to try to understand what the hell was going on, what the claims were, how, how true they may or may not have been, and why people were so afraid. And the point of it, the takeaway, is that we repeat fears throughout history, and we just don't have the institutional memory to realize it. So when you hear somebody say that some new piece of technology like texting or Snapchat or the iPhone or whatever, when you hear somebody say that that is damaging us in some way, like, the, you know, for example, they'll say, uh, oh, it's making our attention spans shorter or, oh, Google makes us stupid or Facebook makes us sad and lonely. 
they were saying that about the bicycle. And the bicycle <laughs> now is not viewed as a dangerous thing. And the lesson is that the fears of today will be mocked tomorrow. If you think today that Google is making you stupid, the people of 50 years who survived, who were not stupid, they think that you are stupid. <laughs> and, uh, and, and that to me is very optimistic. And the reason it's optimistic is because it means that we don't break. It means that though we continue to fear innovation, innovation comes and we adapt it into our lives and we keep moving forward. That if we were actually fragile, then humanity would have ended long before in the bicycle. It would have ended it at writing because people objected to writing. Writing. They said that it would stop us from being able to remember things. Why would you write it down? You should just remember it, right? We survived. It's an optimistic show, and, 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 I, and I hope that it causes people to question the fears that they have today. Wow, yeah, that's a, that's a great explanation of it, and it's really a terrific show. And Thank I, you. I'd encourage everyone to go and, and download it uh, right now. Um, well, the latest... at the end of the show. At the well, end of this at episode. the end of the show. Finish listening to this. Give, give us a bit of a <laughs> yeah, listen. Don't, don't, um, get, don't give people the exit ramp too early. <laughs> exit ramp is closed. <laughs> Detour, you're finishing this. Um, one of the things that strikes me about Pessimist Archive in particular, um, obviously listen to a lot of podcasts, but something about that one is it is so, I mean, I've never seen your process or, or really been a part of it, but it just, it feels so meticulous. Mm -hmm. it's, you know, the, the timing is amazing. The it's clear that you've got a script that you've really worked on and edited yeah. um, ahead of time. You've got other voices coming in when it could have just been your own. Like, you know, you've got a, an archival reader, I think it's called. Yeah, I call them the archival reader. And then every time I have to reach out to an archival reader, it's like hard for me to explain what it is. But it's basically somebody I ask to read some of the old quotes that I found. So stuff from a newspaper in the 1850s. I'll, I'll ask somebody um, who is relevant to the subject. So, for example, in the chess episode, I found a, 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 the host of a podcast called Perpetual Chess to be the archival reader. So he was the guy reading the quotes from the 1700s, objecting to chess. Nice. You just had our buddy Mike Darling from, from Vice I did. as your reader. Yep. Right. So and the reason I do this, and, and, and this includes uh, with Mike, uh, <laughs> um, though also because I love involving my friends and stuff, but let's be honest, the reason I... The reason I reached out to him is the same reason I reached out to the guy from Perpetual Chess and from all these other things, which is that the archival reader for me serves two purposes. Uh, you know, when, when you build something, when you build a show and you build, you know, you, you have to, you have to think about how to maximize every piece of effort. And so I do the archival reader one, because it breaks up me talking, right? I, I want it to feel like a full experience and a full experience is not me just blabbering at you for a while Two, though very importantly if i bring someone onto the show they're more likely to promote the show so if i make an episode about chess and then i bring a podcaster who has a whole community of chess lovers listening to his show and bring him on my show, he's more likely to tell his fans about it. And then I've got his fans listening to my show. It, it, it's a way It's a way of kind of organic uh, uh, marketing, you know? So the reason I brought Mike on was because it was an episode about vaccines, the history of the anti-vax movement. And Mike works for a health vertical at Vice. So I reached out to him and I said, hey, I would love to have you on the show. And will plug tonic the extension of vice and uh in return 
I would love if Tonic would run an article based on my episode. And he said, he talked about it internally and came back and said, great. And then that, that article it turned out was just written by me. I basically just took my, I took my podcast script and I, I shrunk it down and, and articleized it. And that's what ran under my byline, but it, it, it ran with a link to the show and, right. uh, and that, that's, that's how I market the show. Wow. That's smart. So where I was going to go with that comment about the, the, the show just having this sort of incredible level of detail is you would listen to that show and think this is the only thing that this guy does. <laughs> like it is so, it is so perfect. And so much has been so painstakingly made that there is no way this man has any other things to do with his time. Yeah. Then you zoom out and like you are the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine, which is to be the editor-in-chief of anything is two and a half jobs. Yeah. I mean, what I think a lot of people don't realize these days is you're essentially a CEO because gone are the days where you are just the editor on top of all the other editors. You have budgets, you have video, you have social media. I mean, it's just this empire. Keith Kroc, Keith Kroc, who's the chairman of DocuSign, I was just interviewing him a couple days ago on stage at an event of ours and he told me that I am the VP of product and the chief trust officer. Like that's what an editor in chief is VP of product and chief trust officer. And I was like, that is excellent. That's, that's perfect because a lot of people actually don't understand what an editor in chief does. And that's a really good way of explaining it. Yeah. And you know, on top of that, then there's the problem solvers podcast as well. And then just to boot, you're an author. And yeah. You have a book coming out soon. Uh, yeah, next next October, October 2018. Well, actually, we don't we haven't set a date yet. It could be September, cool. fall of 2018. So yeah. we'll swing back around to that. Sure. But where I'm going here is how do you work on so many projects, and it really is simultaneously. I mean, you're working on a couple things a day. Yeah. And maintain that level of energy and that that eye for detail because it's so easy when you're working on numerous things to just sort of I don't want to say phone it in, but to do the MVP, the minimal minimal viable product, like mm-hmm. the least you can do to make something work. Yet you are clearly going bounds beyond that. How do you maintain that, yeah, that energy? It's a good question. And, and there are other things that I do <laughs> that are not in that list. So I'm also building out a speaker business. So I go and I, I you know, do paid keynotes. I spent quite a part of this year developing a website called Crossing. It's a search engine for street intersections and it's street intersections by name. And, uh, uh, there's a couple other smaller writing projects. I've been talking about another book, which sounds and feels insane. Anyway, so the answer to your question is a couple things. Number one, you, you have to know what motivates you and what pushes you. And for me, it is gaining and achieving in new opportunities. I really thrive on it. I, I, I used to joke throughout my career that I... Um, that I I am very bad at job job monogamy, like I you know like I really like I I just I can't commit to one job. I remember you telling me this years back. I was still I was at the beginning of my uh, career at Men's Fitness Magazine, I think, mm. and you were I think you were actually you had maybe just left Men's Health. So That's possible. Yeah, right around. I mean, then. when we met, you were at Men's Fitness. Yeah. yeah. Um, and we were on a press trip uh-huh. in, in Salt Lake City. In, in, par- in, Park Park City. Sl- in Park City, Utah. Park Sl- yeah. <laughs> at the St. Regis. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And um, uh, right. And we, actually, if you look over to my bar cart, I've got a bottle of High West there. I noticed Park that. City's finest. Actually, when I walked in. Yeah. <laughs> we, could, we, could, we could open that next. So I, I, yeah, I do. I have terrible job monogamy. And, and 
what that has led me to is freelancing my face off while at every job that I've had and then leaving every job. Like I've never stayed at a job longer than three years and that's fine. I mean, it, it turned out to work out really well <laughs> that, that, that pattern led me to where I am, but I certainly intend to hold on to this one longer. I, I, I love this one, but the thing that this job provides me, which is so great is one, it provides me lots of different opportunities to do tons of stuff. So just at my job alone, the job of editor-in-chief is not just working on the magazine. It's also working with the business side and the ad guys and also kind of doing face of brand stuff. So I go and do TV and radio interviews and I help program our major event that we just did in Los Angeles. And, uh, and then I launched the, one of the, another podcast called Problem Solvers for that. And then I also kind of help um, give feedback into our podcast network that we're so it's like it, it, it demands a lot of me but um but also it's it feels like it's all to one mission which is entrepreneur and i want to try other things so i just know here's what i know i know that i um i have a really hard time having an idea and not going for it and i want to do everything i just want to do everything and i want to keep adding and so that challenges me to figure out ways to do it but the one thing that it doesn't do is drain me of energy because it gives me energy. Like I know what gives me energy and what gives me energy is to, is to stack tons of stuff onto myself and then figure out how to make it work. And that doesn't work for everybody, but it does work for me. So the energy thing is, is no problem. I would say that actually I would have less energy if I wasn't doing those things. Hmm. Um, and then the task is to figure out how to do them all. And so I do a couple things. I, I build teams. I build teams and then I and then I constantly experiment on how to most efficiently use those teams. So Pessimist Archive has a team, Problem Solvers has a team, the magazine very obviously has a team. And then I also will, it'll be crunch time for a certain thing, right? So, so there are times during my schedule where I am, I feel like I'm moving six different projects five yards at a time. And then there's a time where it's like, okay, the Pessimist Archive has to get done now. The next day and a half is Pessimist Archive. We're driving that one to the end zone and we're leaving all the others behind and then we'll reset and we'll do the whole thing over again. It's just managing your time and, and priorities and just kind of making sure that making sure that everyone has access to you. So working in, in sprints almost. Yeah, it will. It's like, it's, I guess it would be like a, um, I mean, uh, you're the fitness guy. I'm sure there's a, you could have the better metaphor for me here, but it's, it's, um, it's like, a, it's different kinds of training. Like you're right. So it's like, it's, it's like short pushes and then it's the sprint and then it's back to the short pushes and then it's the sprint. It's okay. whatever the you hell. You've got some interval training. Interval training. <laughs> That's, I knew that that was what it was. I couldn't think of it. Yeah. So I want to talk about investment, but not in the way that you might think. Investment could be money, it could be time, it could just be energy. Uh -huh. What would you say is the best investment that you have ever made? Or, at least, or in recent memory? Oh, boy, that's an interesting question. The best investment that I have made, I... Hmm. <laughs> Certainly not money. Um, I, I mean, I have... You know what? I'll say, I'll say that... Um, 
I'll say that it's it, this is just going to feel like something of a cop out, but then let me caveat, let me explain it, and maybe it'll feel satisfying. So the best investment I made was was in in committing myself to entrepreneur, and um, and and so I was working at Maxim, and that was going to draw to its natural conclusion, and uh, um, and I was looking for something else, and I got connected through a former colleague with the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur, who was looking for an executive editor. So that's the number two in a magazine. And I was like, eh, I mean, Entrepreneur is a smaller brand than any other brand I've worked at. I've never read it. I don't know who's reading it. I, I, I just don't know. I don't know. And so I talked her into giving me a three-month contract as executive editor, because she was just desperate. She like needed someone now. And uh, I, so I was like, why don't we try this as a three month thing? I'm gonna explore some other projects in the meantime, and let's just see how it goes. And after three months, I thought, okay, I'm enjoying this. I, people people read and love it. I get it now, I, I, I get the brand. It's not, it's not the magazine I would make. I, I wasn't in love with the older version of the magazine, but um, but you know what I decided? I thought, I thought I shouldn't turn down an interesting opportunity in a molten environment. And molten environment is a term that I have stolen from Michael Dubin, the founder of Dollar Shave Club. We ran a feature on him earlier this year, and, and he said that what he likes to do is work in molten environments where where they're not fully formed yet, where he can really shape them. And I saw that in Entrepreneur. I was like, this is a place that's in flux. Lots of lots of things are changing. Uh, I I've been given fairly a fairly broad mandate to to fix up the magazine, and let's um let's not worry about how big the brand is or how sexy it is, right? I mean, like it's like cooler in some circles to be working for fast company. It's like kind of developed this like buzzy thing and all the buzzy companies and entrepreneurs a little more like down to earth. It's like talking to entrepreneurs. Um, and, and I was at Fast Company before, I should note. So, but I said, you know what? I'm gonna give this a shot, and I, I'll do all my other things on the side. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna jump into this, and I'm gonna see what I can really make of it. And holy crap, that turned out to be a great decision because, uh, like, less than a year later, the editor in chief left, and because I had spent the last something year working there, I had, I had my own ideas of what this magazine could be. I, I had connected with the audience. I started, I really understood them, and I was able to present this plan for running the magazine. And then I got the editor in chief job and it's like, holy crap. Like I wasn't planning on that. I was planning on being executive editor and like doing a whole bunch of other projects. And instead here I got like the top job and it's been a career changing experience. And so I would say that the, to go back to the question, like the best investment is in taking a chance on something that feels like a great learning environment, even though it may not seem like the, thing that you had planned on doing, right? That like sometimes experiences come out of places that you didn't intend to go to, but that turn out to be the right decision. What I like about that story as well, one of the things I like about that story is you, you weren't afraid to negotiate a little bit. I mean, executive editor is a great position at any magazine. Yeah. Um, and of course, all of your sort of concerns is maybe too strong a word, but your thoughts made sense surrounding that title. But to come back and say, can I do this for three months? And let's sort of see where it goes from there. I think a lot of people, particularly younger people, um, it's only a matter of time before we start talking about millennials in this episode, 
um, would, would be afraid to bring something like that up. You, you get an offer and you take it, right? Especially because a lot of people our age graduated into one of the worst job economies ever. Right. You know, just like, hey, here's your degree for that thing you studied. Probably not anything out there for you right now. Um, so when you did get an offer, it was like, man, take that thing. Yeah, I know. So is, is that something that you've gotten better at over time? Or have you always, so did you just try it for the first time this, this round? I have not throughout my career been the greatest negotiator of salaries or <laughs> titles. <laughs> I've, I've, I've kicked myself for that. And sometimes friends ask me for advice on negotiating and I always tell them, that uh, it's, it's never been my area of expertise, but I have always approached my career with a sense that risks are okay. So the risk I've generally taken has not been in the throwing a crazy number down and saying, pay me this or I'm not going to take the job, right? The risk is in taking a certain job uh, or taking on some new thing. Uh, I, I will often be the guy who dives into some crazy project at, at work or, you know, or, or, um, or new opportunities. When I was a fast company, we a video department developed and I jumped in and like started a weekly call on the yelling at the camera. Basically I was like the, I was like the young Andy Rooney for business. And, uh, and you know, it was like, I, I had, I had colleagues in the, in the print department where I worked who would, who, who just like, they were like, they would never put themselves in front of the camera. They were so, so uncomfortable with it. But I just felt like, why not? Let's give it a shot. So I I felt like, you know, what do you got to lose? What do you got to lose? This isn't, this isn't, this doesn't feel like, it's, it's not like, uh, you know, this isn't the opportunity of, uh, of a lifetime. It didn't look like that at the time. It turned out to kind of be the opportunity of a lifetime, but it didn't, it wasn't that at the time. It felt like, you know, I hold the cards here. I'm a talented guy. I think that I'll be fine no matter what happens. Like I could have not gotten that job and I would have figured something else out. Like I just feel resourceful. And so, uh, and, and that certainly took time, right? Like you, you have to, you have to learn to trust yourself. I definitely remember my first couple jobs succeeding and having my coworkers like me and getting good assignments and whatever, and being afraid to go to another place because what if it was luck? What if it was luck? What if it, what if, it was luck that I was at Boston Magazine for 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 a year and a half or something, and and su succeeded there. Like I I got along with my coworkers. I I I was doing great projects. I, I you know people liked and trusted me. And I was like, what happens if I go to Men's Health, which was the next place I went to? And and it was just luck. It was just the right people. And Boston Magazine was where I should stay. But you know you you like put your you have to put yourself in new situations. You have to see how you do. And once you see a pattern. And to me, the pattern was I can walk into a new place and get it and achieve. That's it. You know, I, I just, I felt like, okay, you know what? I trust myself. I can do that in any situation. That means I hold the cards. The employer doesn't hold the cards. I hold the cards. I'm a catch. And, you know, I mean, I, I like, I don't like go strutting around like, like, you know, saying that, but that's how I think of it. You know, like I just, I just have a lot of confidence in myself. Yeah. And I think you've been particularly good at just utilizing different media for, um, you know, whether it's developing a new video series or, or a new podcast or something like that. And one that I personally loved and was sad to see go well when, when you left Fast Company was 
what was it called? The 29th Floor. The 29th that Floor. That was my, yeah, that was the that was the series where I yelled at the camera. I love that series. Me too. That, did you have a prompter for that or were you just... No, I didn't. I did. I've actually never learned how to use a prompter. So I've, I, I, we tried it and I, and I, I couldn't do it. And wow. so, uh, but we didn't do it in one take. So let, let's, let's uh, for, you know, for those who haven't seen it, as if there's a large audience of people who are like, I remember 29th floor from 2014. Um, so 29th floor was every week. It was a weekly video series, um, me direct to camera, uh, with like the city in the background. And, um, and I would take a business subject that was that was in the news. Usually, it, we filmed it on a Thursday morning, so I would spend Wednesday like looking for a story, whatever was going on. I would I would write a funny script about it, and basically, I would have a take. Uh, something made me angry, or something 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 was like there was some kind of logic flaw in whatever was happening in the news, and I wanted to expose the logic flaw and try to steer people towards a better vision of business and treating customers and treating each other. That was the way that I saw it. And I did that by just being kind of outraged in a John Taffer almost kind of way, uh, less sweaty. And, uh, and so how did I, the way I did it was that I, um, I wrote it, uh, usually Wednesday night and then Thursday morning on the subway to work, I would read it over and over again. And I would try to kind of commit it to memory and then I would get to the camera and I would do it paragraph by paragraph. So, uh, so I would try to, I would like try to knock one paragraph down. It would take me a few takes and then I would do the second one. And the reason I would do that is because it was rapid fire, right? So I was, it was like, what made it work was that I was speaking really fast and I was just keeping going and I was really angry, but it was all very articulate. And like, that's really, really hard to, it's hard to compress a, a 400 word script into your head that you wrote the night before and then deliver it in a rattle like that. So, so we, that's how we did it. So we would, we would have me do it in paragraphs and then the editor would kind of stitch them together. Um, and you know what I would do differently now? Uh, I have discovered as I've gotten more into public speaking and have become a, yeah, I'm mean a podcaster or a keynoter. Um, I, I actually wouldn't have tried to memorize it word for word. Uh, I would have, try to remember the outline of it and then just rift. You know, that's something I run into a lot um, producing daily videos uh, for men's health. And we get, you know, sometimes four or five, six personalities in a day that we shoot. And every so often you come across someone who's over-prepared, really. They've, they've got their script written down on their phone and they're trying to memorize it. And it's just, those are the shoots when it's just take after take after it's take brutal. after take. And all you have to do to correct that is to just say, what are your main points? Well, this, this, and this. Okay, remember those three words and string them together however you want. That's right. And then it's just like magic, it clicks. It comes out natural. I attended an event once. I will be vague about it because I don't want to embarrass anyone. I attended an event once. I was a speaker and there was this person giving a keynote and the person got up and started and then a couple minutes in stumbled and I've never seen this before. The person stood there for like 30 seconds, long, terrible silence. <laughs> and then staggered through a sentence like over and over again, the same words until 
got back into it and went for another few minutes and then it happened again and it kind of kept happening and you can see what was going on the person had memorized word for word the entire keynote and the second that this speaker fell off of the script they didn't know where to go because they didn't give themselves the freedom and flexibility to just feel their way through it instead the only thing that they could do was try to try to like scan through the script in their head find the place and then keep going like you could literally see the shape of the paragraph yes, in your head yes you could see them reading it in their head and that's another thing is like even if even if someone has memorized it word for word uh, and then and then are delivering it successfully it still feels like they're reading it in their head mm-hmm. they're not speaking and I, I mean I watched that and I just thought what a disaster like you should never try to memorize I mean if you want to I, I have been in situations where I needed to deliver like we you know we we an entrepreneur we did the new fronts this year which is the uh so the up uh the upfronts are the app where like brand networks showcase their app their i don't even know how to describe it they showcase their, their slate of content for advertisers and then the new fronts came and that's for digital brands to do the same thing so we were doing that and we were on a really tight schedule it was like a 45 minute show and we had all these advertising executives there and i and i opened it up and and i had two minutes to kind of set the tone of the brand i was not going to wing that right like i I, I, I did memorize that, um, but but instead of memorizing it here, this is I just couldn't strongly couldn't more strongly recommend this tactic for anybody who has to stand up and give something where it, it really needs to be like super pointed. Do not write something and then try to memorize it word for word. Instead, write an outline and then try to perform a version of it in your room by yourself. And then perform it again and perform it again and perform it again and do it over and over and over again. And what will happen is that a very organic version of this thing will solidify in your head so that you basically are memorizing something. But you're memorizing something because you just said it over and over again, which is very different from reading it and then feeling like, oh, I got to check the, did I say and or what? They're like, you know, you, you feel attached to the thing. So that's what I did. And that's how I honed like a two minute thing that I totally delivered word for word from my practice. So to be clear, you're saying rather than writing it on paper and reading and reading and reading it and just trying it, put the paper away. Correct. Recite as much as you can from memory and then use the page to sort of, whenever you kind of forget what comes next, Don't take re- a look at You're it. not even reciting anything from memory. You are creating a speech. It's like molding it like clay in your head. You, it does not ever exist on paper. What exists on paper is an outline. Three, four, five points that you need to make in the order that you uh, make gotcha. them. And then you think, how do I get from point A to point B? What words do I say? And then you just deliver it. Just deliver it over and over again. And what you'll find is that you'll you'll start to find the natural way that you will you would say it. Mm-hmm. Because I guarantee you that when you write something out and then try to perform the thing you read, it isn't going to come out organic because you can't write the way that you speak. You can't do it. You speak the way that you speak and you write the way that you write. And it's a very specialized skill set to be able to translate one to the other. So what you need to do is speak. And, and so, so I think that when you try to, when you try to recite something in your head that was written, it doesn't feel natural because it was written, not, not spoken. So you need to speak it 
over and over and over again. It never exists on paper. You speak it over and over until you get familiar with it, until it becomes a solidified thing that exists only in your head, and then you go and deliver it. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes that's a great tip for, I think, just people who maybe want to get into more public speaking or anyone who maybe has stage fright. Because I think that's a big part of stage fright. People who just think, I have to memorize this. Yeah. And you almost get so in your own head that you think, everyone already knows the script and they're going to know the second I, I get an and wrong. You know? Right, right. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I think that also people are afraid that they'll freeze up. Yeah. And uh, my, I mean, my, my advice for that would be to you know, just feel really solid about the opening. Like once you get the hardest part is to walk on stage and start. That's the hardest part. And if you can get through the first two, two sentences and you see that the audience is not going to, is not going to like grab their pitchforks and come running at you from this on the stage, uh, then you feel a lot more confident, right? Like those nerves just kind of go away. So it's, it's just, it's like breaking that ice, getting, getting on there. So I would, you know, be, if you need to memorize, if like, if, if you're nervous enough, that you need to memorize word for word the first sentence or two out of your mouth, that's fine because those are easy enough to memorize. But, um, but don't memorize the whole thing because then then you'll get, then you'll you'll get lost. You'll freeze up. Just get going. Just Absolutely. loosen up. So I, we were talking about your um, the show you used to do at Fast Company, and I want to use that as a as a pivot point. Um, my favorite episode was one where Ooh, I like that you have a favorite. Episode. I have a favorite episode. I watched the show. It was a great <laughs> show. Um, my favorite episode was one where you were going around the Fast Company office and someone else was holding the camera and it was done in the style of, oh man, the late, I guess, Steve Irwin. Um, oh yeah, that's know, right. It was. It I was, never thought it was very like, like about National that. Geographic. It was. Kind of like sneak, and it was all about millennials. Because right. Because this was when, you know, this was what, probably three years ago, maybe, maybe even more. Yeah, I guess more. 2014. Yeah, when, when the conversation was still very much like, oh my God, the millennials, like how do we communicate with them? Like what language do they speak? What right. do they like? Um, they're the biggest market sector. We need them. And your episode was all about, all right, we're going to, we're going to try and communicate with some millennials. You're almost like sneaking up on them. Like, all right, observe in its natural habitat. It's checking its Facebook feed. And then you would sort of venture forward, you know, the intrepid host and say like, hello. And they'd look at you and say, hi, how's it going? And you'd sort of have this, you know, very basic conversation. And it was like, I, I just love the way that you sort of put it on this pedestal, like, this is how you communicate with millennials. And the underlying message was just like any other human being, they're human be- we're human beings, we're millennials. Um, now that you're at you know, this position at Entrepreneur where you really can dictate the direction of the, at least to a large extent, the direction of the magazine um, and the editorial voice and the tone and the coverage, how do you speak to your audience in a way, and I'm, I'm asking this really on behalf of people who are listening, who are you know, marketers, um, maybe in editorial, how do you write in a way where you are appealing to both your older, more sort of traditional business people, because obviously Entrepreneur Magazine has been around a while, but also this newer wave of entrepreneurs? Um, and you kind of touched on it briefly before that really it's becoming cool to like start companies, right? Yeah. Like you've got the whole kind of tech scene in Silicon mm-hmm. Valley. It's definitely yeah, the word entrepreneur is super well. cool. It's a cool word. Yeah. And it's just, it conjures this image of like, you're in some like coffee shop with your laptop and like, you know, you like, it's just, yeah. it's become like this lifestyle thing. Uh-huh. Um, and there's this whole aesthetic around it, but yet you're in a position where you really have to cater to very different ends of the spectrum. How do you do that without kind of just abandoning a sector of your audience? So 
Yeah. Well, I mean, it, those are, those are like both huge subjects. Uh, so I'll take them, I'll take them in parts and I'll try not to talk for 10 minutes straight. <laughs> uh, um, so first, uh, thank you. I, I also love that millennial episode. Um, and it, it was, it was one that I'd wanted to do for a while because it drives me insane that people treat millennials like they're some kind of different species. I mean, very much like my, the point I'm trying to make on Pessimist Archive, we all forget that we say the same things about every generation. Like the complaints that people have about millennials, like straight up, no matter how old you are, if you are complaining about millennials, people complain about you the exact same way. The same way. Like there's no difference. The only difference with millennials is that they're the first generation to come up in a digital environment. So they are making their mistakes in this kind of horrific public way in a way that we, by being a little bit older, didn't have. Like I, I had the internet, but I didn't have the internet. I had like AOL when I was growing up, right? You didn't have like a That's all gone. Yeah, <laughs> right. Like everything that I did on AOL is gone, thankfully. <laughs> you know? So um, I really hate, I really, really hate that people treat millennials like they're different in some way. They're not. They're not. They're just young people. And you know what? At this point, they're not even that young. Like Gen Z is young now. Like millennials are... Millennials are your coworkers and in some cases bosses. Mm -hmm. So let's, 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 it's not even lay, lay off. Like, let's just stop being stupid. Let's just stop being stupid. Like millennials are normal people and they did exactly what you did when they were 20. So, yeah. So that's why I was like, I was like, yeah, the Steve Irwin thing. I was like, so what, what, what you need to do when you approach a millennial is speak to them like they can hear you and think. Think about what you're saying, right? Like that's, the, and then I would just go up and like have a normal conversation. So, um, so I don't think of the, I, I don't think of speaking to multiple generations as speaking to different kinds of people because I, I, I just believe that they're the same people. So it's, it's more um, of a psychographic than a demographic. Yeah. Well, it's, it's more, a mindset. it's, it's a, it's a, I mean, if you are coming to a magazine called entrepreneur, you, you, you have like, it's a self-selecting group. You are a certain kind of mindset to begin with. The major difference, I think, is in resources available and level of achievement. That's that's the main difference, right? This magazine is gonna get picked up by someone who's running a venture-backed company and some student who's just dreaming of being an entrepreneur and someone who's running a rag shop in New Jersey. Like it's gonna, it's being picked up by everybody. So the question that I felt presented with was how do you talk to all those people? And I think what a marketer would do, it's funny because when I talk to marketers, they break these things down into these very clever, like there are, there are the wants and then there are the needs. I, you know, I, I like, I try to remember that stuff when they say it, cause I'm like, oh, that sounds smart. I just can't remember it. Uh, cause I don't think that way. I think in stories. So I think what do all of these people have in common? And I honestly couldn't articulate it at the very beginning because I hadn't spent enough time with the audience. I'd only been there for about a year when suddenly I had this opportunity to basically interview to be editor-in-chief. But I had this idea, and it's the same idea. I just know how to articulate it better, which is that entrepreneurs or anybody who identifies as an entrepreneur, which is to say anybody who makes things happen for themselves, they all have one thing in common. And that is the experience of entrepreneurship. 
the experience of entrepreneurship is, is very challenging. It's emotionally a challenging experience. You feel lonely at times. You feel completely crazy. You feel isolated. You have these problems that are constantly being presented to you that you have no familiarity with, and you have to figure out how to solve them on the fly. And that is something that you can bring a student and Keith Kroc, chairman of DocuSign together, and they can have a conversation about the same emotional experience because it's the same. That person has anxiety. This person has anxiety. It matches. So what I try to do, of course, I don't want to make a magazine about anxiety, right? Then I'm making like psychology today. Making a magazine is anxiety. Is anxiety. That's absolutely right. Yeah, right. Like I live in the media world. We are nothing but anxiety. I instead think of, okay, people, people want their fears and, and anxieties to be acknowledged. They find it very satisfying to see that they are not alone in feeling these things. And they love to see that people succeeded despite of them. So the stories that I tell are all problem-solving stories and they're all acknowledging of difficulty and they try to understand how somebody thought their way to success and in, in, a, in a way in which it feels real. Like this is the real stuff. And those are the stories that I tell. And it's been successful. I find that people of all different types reach out to me and compliment me on stories. And they're coming from totally different backgrounds. And that to me says that it's working. You mentioned how when you're an entrepreneur, you it's like you go through those how many stages there are of you know it's like regret, guilt, euphoria, like it's just it's a different thing every day. The trough um, of sorrow. But one thing that you hear about consistently is often referred to as the dip, where you you know you're gung ho about a project, maybe you've got some initial investment, maybe it's just your own initial investment, um, you get going, and inevitably there's that point where the momentum kind of slows. And maybe you had a lot of initial opportunities. Maybe those are the things that got you excited to get going in the first place. But then those kind of, you're done with those opportunities and the next ones aren't quite in focus yet. Do you have any, and has an entrepreneur covered this at all, where ways to sort of keep your head up, you know, things to remind yourself you are on the right path and you are in fact not crazy. This idea is a winner. It's just at one of those early developmental stages where things aren't 100% consistent yet. Yeah. So there's a whole lot to say about that. Uh, the first thing that comes to mind is something that Reed Hoffman says. He's the co-founder of LinkedIn. He's got a great podcast called Masters of Scale that we actually partnered with last year. He says that if you are not embarrassed by your first product, then you launched too late, which is to say that you cannot sit on the fence and try to tweak something to perfection because it will never be perfect before you put it out there. It needs the world. It needs the aggressive sandstorm of the world to shape it down into something great. And so when you that was a metaphor on the fly right there. Uh, and you can't sit on the sidelines and try to refine something into perfection forever. You know what that is? That's, that's called analysis paralysis. Like you'll just analyze yourself to death and you won't actually do the thing. And the most important thing is to do the thing. Like the taking the first step 
is the accomplishment all on its own. And you will learn things along the way. You, you must learn things along, along the way. Your thing will not succeed in the way that you initially envisioned it will. You have to put it out in the world. The world has to, has to batter it with a sandstorm to shape it into something of purpose and value. And everything changes. And so I think that one, you have to be okay with that happening. You know, it's funny, I, I I was on Aubrey Marcus's podcast not long ago, and he had asked me something of a similar question, though the way that he had phrased it was, what do you what is your advice to someone who hasn't started yet, like who wants to start, you know? And and I said that the most important thing is to just do, to like just go do something, to to like take on something or start to build something or start a side hustle, like whatever, because ultimately you're testing yourself. And, uh, and the, the most important thing that you have to learn at the beginning is not actually whether your idea is great. It's whether you are capable of carrying it out. That's the most important thing. So the first thing that you do is you test yourself. And Aubrey said, that's totally true. And that the thing that you need to do is get yourself to the first failure. Because that's when you really test yourself. Like the major challenge, it's interesting because I had always thought of it like the major challenge and the major accomplishment is just starting. And Aubrey's perspective was that the major accomplishment is getting to the first failure and then seeing if you can get through it. And that's when you really test yourself. That's when you really know if you have an idea you love, if you have an idea that you want to spend time with, right? It's not any different from, you know, you and I and every damn media person we know talk about writing books all the time. But the thing is that if you're going to take on a subject for a book, you have to love it enough to live with it for like years, like years. And that actually, when you start to think about that, that really limits the number of subjects that you will take on. I mean, I, I, I had an agent who really wanted me to write a book about the sense of smell. And I was excited about writing a book, but I just didn't care enough about the subject to How... live with it for years. What gave that agent the impression that you are... Oh, because I don't have a sense of smell. I'm sorry, what? I, <laughs> I, don't, I don't have a sense of smell. You did you not know that? I, I did not know oh, that. Oh, yeah, I don't have a sense of smell. How? Yes. Uh, I mean, how? Probably because an au pair accidentally dumped me out of a stroller when I was a child and I was, and I was in traction. Um, but it could have been something else. Does that, does that mean that you cannot taste food? That's correct. Oh, my God. Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah. So we poured ourselves some whiskey at the very beginning, some bourbon, some J I'm going to turn around to see what the name of this thing is. Some J. Henry bourbon from Wisconsin that was given to me as a gift by another podcaster. And grab mine yeah, right do it. Uh, and I've been, I've been drinking away throughout this whole thing. Every time Dean has asked me a question, I've been drinking whiskey and I, you, you, so you didn't catch, but, but I, I said something to you like, you tell me if you like it. You know, I don't really, I don't really know. But I was, it was like a half-empty bottle. Like I've drank this plenty of times. I just don't know if it's good. Uh, to me, it's just whiskey. When you, when you take a sip of this whiskey, like I mentioned when I, when I tried it before we started talking, um, you know, it's got some bite in the beginning, correct? But then it drops off, so it yeah. goes down nice and easy. Right, do I you, noticed that. Do, do yeah. you get those sensations? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, that's all. So, so like everything that you just described there is from what's called the uh, uh, the, um, the fifth tri the trigeminal nerve. It's the fifth cranial nerve. It is the nerve that gives you feelings inside of your face. So hot sauce, 
mint, which creates a cooling sensation. Those things are all a nerve. So that's not taste at all. Now, of course, taste combines, uh, taste and smell combine with those feelings to create a fuller sensation. So you get the burn, which I also get, but you also get, I don't know, whatever the hell else you get, stuff I don't. Uh, uh, but I can, I can identify good whiskey from bad whiskey because of that burn, you know, and uh, the smoothness and also whiskey has a texture. I mean, all, yeah. all, all spirits have a texture. So you can tell a Johnny Walker blue from a Johnny Walker red because it's all texturally different. So I, 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 I pick that stuff up. Wow. So you mentioned an au pair and a stroller. How yeah. old were you at this point? I don't know. I'm not, not old. Two, maybe? So as far as you can remember, you don't generally know what food tastes like. That's correct. Yeah. You know, actually, I went to high school with someone in Zurich, um, we were at this international school. She was from Sweden, I think. And she had an accident where she fell off the back of a golf cart and hit her head. Mm -hmm. And all, her sense of smell and taste were just gone. Like, just like that. Yeah. So Everything head, else was fine. No head trauma. But, yeah. Head trauma. Um, take, take your finger and put it on the tip of your nose and just move it up to the top, to the bridge, right between your eyes. That point right there. I don't actually don't. I don't know why I had you move your finger because that doesn't. Really <laughs> I, I just did so, it. So <laughs> yeah, it's not not really necessary. Um, it just felt strategic. Anyway, that that point right there between your eyes is where your olfactory nerves are, and they're very thin and they're easily damaged. And so head trauma, even light head trauma, can damage them. Uh, an upper respiratory infection can damage them. Uh, chemical exposure can damage them. Lots of things can damage them. And then it is up to your body whether or not they regenerate, and they frequently don't. So I want to pivot, and there is no clean segue. No, it's fine. You, you didn't head, expect that subject. You, you mentioned head trauma. Uh-huh. So Ooh. I want to talk about something that might be considered head trauma by maybe older generations. Okay. Selfies. <laughs> Selfies. Yeah. Now, there was a time not too long ago, I believe it was 2015, where... 2013. Was it 2013? Yeah. It's old. It's old school. The New York Times? The old, oh, the New York Times? I think that was 15. Oh, the, the piece I wrote in the Times. But that's good because I want to go back from there. Oh, okay. So maybe back to 2000. Okay, so the piece in the Times actually probably was 15. You were essentially, without being dubbed with the words, you were trusted by the New York Times in 2015 to explain selfies. Yes. So you essentially became the default selfie expert in New York City, if not the United States. Uh, yeah. If I, not the world. I would, say, I would say that I have served in the role of global selfie explainer yes. for many years. Now, before that Times piece, which really felt like the culmination of a couple of things, Yes. take us back to the beginning of the selfie version, because there was a, a blog or a Tumblr at a time, mm -hmm. which was hilarious, and that had its own amazing conclusion. <laughs> How did you sort of become the selfie guy? Yeah. <laughs> And take us um, through that process and explain the times. So, you know, it's funny that uh, you, you'll end up being known often, not for the thing that you spent your whole career building towards, but for some really random thing. And for me, it is, it is probably uh, my, the, the, the career uh, highlight is probably going to be selfies. Uh, not that I intended it. Okay, so in 2013... My wife and I, my wife who just opened the door, as you just heard, uh, is um, uh, we're in we're in Europe, we're in Berlin and Amsterdam, and I notice that people are taking selfies of themselves at the Berlin Wall, and they're taking selfies of themselves at the Anne Frank House, 
And I started to think, you know, I wonder if people are like routinely taking selfies of themselves in just like sort of totally inappropriate places. Like it feels really weird to take a selfie, like a smiling selfie of yourself in front of the Anne Frank house. So when I got home, I did a, I, I searched, I went onto Twitter and Instagram and I, uh, I just started typing in like selfie 9-11 memorial, selfie Holocaust memorial, selfie Chernobyl. And there were tons of these things. So I collected it into a, into a Tumblr called selfies at serious places. And that, that took off that went, you know, sort of, sort of viral, I would say like yeah. it was written about in a number of places. And I got a bunch of, I, some people interviewed me and I had noticed in the, doing the research for that, that people were taking selfies at funerals at a, at a, at a astonishing rate. So then I collected them all about a month later into its own thing called selfies at funerals, selfies at funerals.tumblr.com. And that, I have never experienced anything like this, and I, I don't know that I will ever experience anything like this again. Um, I made that Tumblr. I didn't promote it to any. I intended to, but I like made it at night, and then by the morning, I had done nothing. I had sent it to no people. It was already going viral. It was the weirdest thing. Like my Twitter, my Twitter mentions were blowing up. And what what had started was that um, was that a, a writer at Business Insider had found it probably because she has a I actually don't know but my guess was that because she had a Google alert for the word selfie, and uh, uh, because she covered teen culture and she had written about it and that had just ignited a flame, and so for the next month, I was getting interview requests on a date like multiple interview requests a day for everybody right I mean like. Everybody around the world, the BBC, the Australian Australian Broadcasting Company, CBC in Canada, uh, the New York Times, um, the LA Times, the Guardian asked me to write about. Like it was everywhere. It was insane, and I said yes to everything because I love media attention, and um, and so I started getting quoted everywhere. Right? I mean, everywhere. Like there's a Swedish newspaper that quoted me in Swedish. I, I um. Uh, and consequently, I became the guy that for years, anybody who was writing about selfies, they would call me up for a quote. And uh, and I would always oblige. I mean, li- this still happens. I mean, literally a month ago, uh, CNET um, was writing about Snapchat filters at cemeteries, and they called me up to talk to me. And I'm quoted in this story. Uh, so I've, I've thought a lot about selfies. And then how did that lead to the Times piece two years later? Oh, yeah. Well, so that was, um, I mean, so so I, I've sort of like integrated that whole selfie shtick into my social media, um, which is to say that uh, the thing that I, the thing that I mostly harp on is uh, at this point is not like inappropriate selfies because, you know, I mean, we could talk about this if you want, but I, I don't. I actually don't really feel like the selfies at, the, at funerals were inappropriate. I, I, I like I made the Tumblr not because I thought they were inappropriate, but just because I thought it was interesting. And of course, the grand finale of that Tumblr was the photo of Obama at Nelson and Mandela's. The, that's right, taking a selfie at Nelson funeral. Mandela's. I, you know, it actually wasn't it was his funeral; it was his ceremony before yeah. the funeral. Yeah, but um, but right. So as soon as that happened, like I like my Twitter mentions just exploded, and uh, and so I was like, 
I, I thought, what a perfect mic drop. So I just, I, <laughs> I posted, I think I posted that photo on the top of the Tumblr and I said something like, Obama has taken a funeral selfie. Our work here is done. And, uh, and I, and I declared that I was shutting down the blog, even though the blog, I had never thought about it as an ongoing concern. Like it was always like, here's the collection. Um, but that just, just that action alone created a news cycle where like, again, the LA times called me and the USA today told me it was nuts. So, um, but the thing that I harp on now <laughs> is, um, is that people don't understand what a selfie is. So people will frequently, especially brands, uh, cause a couple of years ago when selfie was the really hot word brands, like every brand wanted to do like a selfie contest, to send a selfie to Applebee's. And, uh, and so, so, but the thing is that they, they would they would call any photo a selfie, right? So a photo of a person standing 10 feet away was called a selfie. Applebee's posted a photo. I mean, Applebee's wasn't a random thing. Like it was Applebee's. I made fun of them in, in a story I wrote once. Um, Applebee's posted a photo of an Applebee's and called it a selfie. It was, it's, that's not a selfie. A selfie is a very specific thing. So, um, so I, the, so the, anyway, the New York Times, so I, I just keep harping on that. And, and so the New York Times ran some piece about Pluto. And I think about, and somehow, I don't remember the context. Oh, do you remember the, he- the context? I think the headline was something like, is this the first selfie of Pluto? They found a way to take a photo of Pluto and they some, for some reason they called it a selfie. Oh yeah, that's right. And it was, it was oh, like a photo satellite. of a satellite. The satellite took the photo. Yeah. Right, right. And, and so, and so I think I, I just tweeted something like, you know, you know, Hey, New York times, Pluto cannot take a selfie, like, or something like that. And that just blew that, like for some, whatever reason, people thought it was funny and it kind of blew up. And, uh, and, um, and then the, it blew up to the point that the public editor of the New York times, who was at the time, Margaret Sullivan, who's now at the Washington post wrote about it. And so once I had written this thing and then the times itself acknowledged it, I thought, Oh, like the iron is hot, right? Like the iron is hot now. <laughs> I have to do something. And so I thought, wouldn't it be funny to write a guideline to what a selfie is and then get it published in the New York Times? <laughs> it, was just such a, it was such an absurd idea. And, uh, and so I, um, the next morning at like 6 a.m., I was up with Ben, my son, and he was, I mean, this was, two years ago. So he's probably just like lying inert on the floor because he was like an infant. And, uh, and I sat down on the couch, this couch that I'm actually sitting on right now. And I wrote this little humor piece. It was, it was sort of, it was structured as a Q and A, it was Q and A style. And it was, uh, it was, it was always like, it, the question was always is, and then some sort of certain context, a selfie. And then I would answer it. And, you know, it, it, like a humor piece, a successful humor piece, and I, I'm not great at them, but I've written a couple that have gotten published. They're, uh, you know, they have to have like an arc, right? Like they have to move the way that a story does, and they have to sort of evolve. And so I, I spent like a day honing this thing, and I got it to a place where it was funny, where the conversation kind of evolved into this weird direction. And then, um, and then I, I think I might have asked my father-in-law for a contact at the New York Times op-ed section. Oh no, uh, no, I didn't. He, I thought that because he writes a lot for the op-ed section. No, we had met, we had met a guy. <laughs> this is how it works. This is the reason you go out to these media, these booze events at night. Um, we had met a guy at, a, at an event a million years ago who worked for the op-ed section. And, um, and so I dug his email address up and I emailed this thing to him and he forwarded it to somebody else, the op-ed section. 
And uh, like an hour, you know, an hour later, um, I had I, I had a, an approval to run this thing in the Times, and then it ran, and then that blew up. It was totally the achievement of this whole silly thing. Well, it's it's definitely a funny piece, and it's a quick read, so I would yeah. encourage everyone to go track it down. Yeah, it's still there. I saw it earlier today. It's still there. You can find it on my website, yeah. jasonpfeiffer.com. There you go. You can find it there, or just Google Jason Pfeiffer selfie. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Or you that can also. go to his site, where you'll find all these other things yeah. that he's promoting. That's right. But uh, that feels like a good place to leave it. Um, Jason, <laughs> thanks for taking the time. Um, before we leave. If people want to get in touch with you, find you on the internet, what is the best way for them to do so? Yeah, so um, you know, let me let me in that answering um, also offer a piece of advice, which is that people have asked this of me in radio interviews and podcast interviews for a while now, and you know, so just just before just before we started taping, um, Dean, you and I were talking about the nature of self-promotion and how some people are really good at it. And we were talking about Tim Ferriss, who's really a master of it. And um, part of it, I think, is building an infrastructure that captures people in the right way. Like it kind of serves them the right thing and then it gives them something more. And I had, so I had a number of uh, entrepreneurs who who I've become friendly with all give me the same piece of advice, which was your website sucks. Like your website sucks, and it it did because I had I'd been thinking of it as just a place to send. I was I think I always thought of it as like a place and a website to send editors when I wanted to write for them. But I hadn't thought of myself as somebody different now. Like now I'm not just a person looking for writing jobs. Now I'm a person who needs to develop his own like audience and following, right? Because I have this opportunity to do so. So I was like, oh, I need a better website, and then I need a way to capture the attention of the or like capture the audience I, I need a newsletter so i um so then i built uh, i built this website and then i it, like right on the front page is is a place to put your email address to do a newsletter and it's been fascinating like i just can't i haven't really promoted it and i, I get signups all the time and uh i i say this to just point out that you know if you are in any kind of position where um you have assets, you have, you have like things that you share with people. Think about if those things are really doing the work that they should be doing, because they're probably not. And there are probably ways that you could improve them to further some goal or just ensure you in case you need it in the future, right? Like what the hell am I going to do with all these email addresses right now? You know, I mean, aside from like serve them a newsletter, I don't know, but in a year I have a book coming out. So I'll let them know about the book and hey, maybe that'll be a couple more sales. Like it's just, you need it. You should just do it even though you don't know what it's for yet. So I improved my website. It's jasonpfeiffer.com. J-A-S-O-N, F as in Frank, E-I, F as in Frank, E-R.com. That contains all my contact information, links to all the podcasts, links to things I wrote. Of course, the sign up for the newsletter. You should totally do that. That way I'll have your email address and I can tell you about a novel I wrote in a year. And, uh, it's just, it's a valuable tool. There you have it. Full of advice, even even when I'm just supposed to be promoting myself. I think we can cut it there. <laughs> Dude, that was great, man. Thanks. Thanks, that was good. Hey guys, Dean here again. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed that, because I know I certainly did. Check us out on Instagram. We are there, at Gamma Project Podcast. We're also on Facebook, and if you haven't yet checked out the site, gammaprojectpodcast.com. You can go there for show notes, photos, and other cool stuff about the guests. That's it for now. See you next time.
Once again, this episode is brought to you by Ultra. Ultra, that's A-L-T-R-A, makes shoes that allow you to run the way that you were born to. This spring, Ultra wants you to embrace the space with their collection of zero-drop running shoes featuring the brand's signature foot-shape toe box. Get fired up for taking your runs outside again with their lineup of fast and light road shoes, which includes models like the Ultra Duo featuring 31mm cushioning beneath both the forefoot and the heel. It also weighs in at a crazy light 7.5 ounces. The Ultra Duo is available at fleetfeetsports.com through March, and that's F-L-E-E-T-F-E-E-T sports.com. And you can also head over to ultrarunning.com for dozens of other models and styles. I would definitely recommend checking out their trail section while you're there. When it comes to taking my runs off-road, there isn't another brand that I will wear, and that is a fact. You can find all of that, plus some outstanding advice and tips that I personally used to correct my own running form, at ultrarunning.com. That's A-L-T-R-A-R-U-N-N-I-N-G dot com.